Hi guys and welcome back to, I've lost number now, I think it's number 16 or 17 of the ASU Sports Business Podcast. Um, thanks for tuning in again and it has been a while. Um, firstly, as usual, thank you for feedback on the previous podcast that we've done about um, unsung heroes and trailblazers within the African sports space or sports business market. It's good feedback and... Um, yeah, for those following us on Instagram, you can see that we started to post some content about people who are doing great things in the uh, in the sports space. So that's good. Um, yeah, it's good to be back. I know it's been a while, but it's brilliant. Had a little holiday, but it's good to be back. Um, so today, I'm just going to get straight into it, guys. Um, today, we're going to focus actually on cycling. It's a space, or it's in the sport actually that. Some people may not be that aware of. Obviously, they understand the UCI and maybe the, the cycling circuit in Europe. But we're going to get a really, really good insight and understanding of the cycling landscape on the continent by two amazing, amazing people. Um, so, yeah, I want to introduce uh, Jock and Kimberly. It's a pleasure to have them on the podcast Jack and Kimberley, they're probably people who you have never heard of before. Um, but if you are involved in cycling on the continent, there's no way that you can't or couldn't have heard of them before. Um, they run a non-profit in the US called Team Africa Rising, where via grant and fundraising across the US, Europe and South Africa, they are able to do their work. And so we had a um, conversation maybe last week or two weeks ago, and just to understand a bit more about what they do. And in their own words, they say that they, they just try to fill the gap by providing support for entities and individuals who are motivated. They support in all different kind of ways. So via equipment, strategy, paperwork, which people in the Western world may take for granted, but in Africa it may be more difficult to, to come by. Um, so yeah, they're great people and yeah, it's a pleasure to have them on the podcast. It's been a long while actually, a long while in the making, but it's good to be here. So Kimberly, Jack, do you guys want to just introduce yourself and give a background about how you found yourself in the in that African, you know, sports market? Uh, my name is Jock Boyer. I ended up in Rwanda uh, first in 2006, kind of by accident, a friend of mine, Tom Ritchie, wanted to organize a, a wooden bike classic bike race in Rwanda, invited me. I didn't really want to go, and then I ended up going and spent 11 days there. We saw some talent, and then uh, I committed for three months of kind of a talent detection uh, time period in spring of February of 2007, yeah. and those three months of commitment ended up being almost 11 years. Wow. wow, wow. So it was kind of, nothing was planned, Not we had no, just no idea what we were doing. We mm. were just kind of like feeling the roots and feeling the impact of cycling within this country, Rwanda, yeah. which is, you know, quite a lot of uh, bikes, not racing bike but bikes made for transport and yeah. uh so that's how it kind of all started and it organically grew into something much bigger than ourselves yeah. and got a lot of people involved that we had never known before okay thanks for that jock and kimberly yourself how did you get into the space in, in terms of what you guys are doing so my name is kimberly coates and i kind of ended up in rwanda by accident yeah. i was working as a business development manager for a large food distribution company in Las Vegas, and I was a recreational cyclist, never raced, um, and I just, um, I'd read an article about Team Rwanda and the work that Project Rwanda was doing in the country, and I just up and quit my job and moved to Rwanda for three months to work and basically to establish the nonprofit, get it legal in the country of Rwanda. And then while I was there, I I just loved working with the team. And I saw that with my logistic and organizational skills that I could mm -hmm. offer some support and help. And the rest is history. Three months turned into eight years. 
Wow. So, wow. Yes. And I think I think that's just so amazing because for you guys listening, I'm sure you can pick up that um, Jack and Kimberly have an American accent. Obviously, as I mentioned, charity stems from America, from where they're from. Um, but I want to get into, I'll get into maybe later on a bit more about, just for you to expand, especially about what you do. But just to set the... I don't know, set the environment or the understanding for our listeners and for myself um, at the moment. So how is how is cycling grown on the continent, especially in Eastern Africa, where you guys have mentioned about your work in Rwanda? Um, so yes, yeah, so you can, can you just provide a better picture for us about how the landscape is at the moment in terms of in terms of cycling? Uh, I would say. Cycling is definitely growing. Some of the countries, for example, Eritrea, cycling is their national sports. Ethiopia, it's more developed. Uh, West Africa is a lot more developed in cycling because of the colonialization, like in France and uh, Algeria, Morocco, uh, even Egypt. It's pretty well organized. And cycling in East Africa, especially the countries, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda is not very, as a sport, it's not very recognized. So it needs a lot of growth. Mm-hmm. And you have athletes uh, from each of those countries that are incredibly talented that mostly migrate, as for example in Kenya, to running because it's something everybody can go outside their door and run. Cycling needs a lot more infrastructure you need roads you need an ability to get parts and the economics of cycling as a race as a sport is incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. even if you gave a brand new you know super nice bike to uh a rider you know within three months it would not be able to ride if you don't have a mechanic if you can't get parts if you can't get chains if you don't know how to adjust the derailleur. So the challenges already Africa faces in regards to a sport like cycling is yeah. immense. Yeah. And that's the challenge. But the talent is there. I mean, Africa's just got mm. amazing talent. And the potential for world-class athletes is huge mm. in quite a few of the countries. I just want to ask off the back of that. Um so you mentioned in cycling, Africa has great talent um, that can go global if right training is um, is given. So how do you how do you find the market in such a in such in a continent that maybe cycling isn't the strongest of sports or the number one sport? We have football and um, basketball there to rival it. So how does cycling kind of survive in that area? And how do you get the word not the word out, but how do you yeah, I suppose get the word out about cycling and its importance and what it can do. Uh, I think one of the most important things we found is having mentors, black African uh, cyclists that have succeeded that give the example to the others. Yeah. And, uh, for example, uh, Adrian Nielshuti, who's a two-time Olympian, a Rwandan, uh, gives an example not just to Rwandans but to all these other people. Mm-hmm. We have Daniel Teknahalmi and uh, Merhawi Kudus who were the first real black Africans to do the Tour de France. Those are the real kind of like sparks and you don't really have to convince uh, a community about cycling because they're pretty savvy and they see it and if you give them the ability to get on a bike and train and ride, you got really a whole base that would be able to get into cycling and succeed. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And so from your from your knowledge, obviously we have East Africa, that's pretty strong, but how is the cycling landscape in maybe other areas of Africa? Because you have such a vast knowledge and exposure to different parts of the of the continent, which is rich in which is rich in culture. As you mentioned in our previous call that we had, East Africa is slightly different from uh, West Africa and vice versa. So how do you, how is that in the continent in terms of cycling um, development and understanding? I think uh, with West Africa, which is a newer area that we've started working in, there 
is a lot of opportunity. And I think what has happened through the rise of cycling in Eritrea, especially, I mean, with not Malberhan in the Tour de France this year again, and seeing him in breakaways, um, I think it's kind of spurred the rest of the continent on. There's this fabulous group in Nigeria called Sustainable Cycling Foundation. And these guys, they're they're basically a, um, a group of older men and women who have established a like a cycling community mm-hmm. and they do these huge group rides they invest in uh, bike shops they invest in the youth and they're the driving force behind team access cocoon which may become the first uh, uci continental team out of nigeria so i think what's happened is that other countries have seen the success of Rwanda. They've seen Rwanda go from a zero cycling country in 2006 yeah. to, uh, in 2018, one of the top countries on the African tour. And they're like, well, why can't we do it as well? And so, again, with Nigeria, um, there's a fabulous young man in uh, Sierra Leone who runs Lunsar Cycling Team. And... It's, it's kind of given hope, these countries. Eritrea, by far, is the leading country because mm-hmm. the riders are the most visible. But, you know, they also see the Ethiopian Skabu Gourmet, who's been in a lot of top races. And I think once we start seeing more black Africans in the Tour de France and in these major races, it will start to grow exponentially. Yeah. Right now, we just have to put more riders into the system, and that includes riders from all over Africa. Yeah. Now, just to paint more of a better picture, um, could you guys literally support people from all ends of the spectrum? If it's paperwork, equipment, education. So in, in your own words, how do you guys support all of these teams or organizations? Because you started off in one country. And anyway, I don't want to get excited or ahead of myself. I allow you guys to explain that part. Well, I... It basically, like you said in the beginning, we fill in the gaps. So, for instance, um, the UCI Continental Team out of Rwanda, Benediction Cycling, um, they were the first Continental Team to ever be formed in Rwanda last year, and this is is their first year racing as UCI Continental Team. We provided that team with wheels and pedals, and um, now in with Team Access Cocoon, we've sent a mechanic for training. So it's it's definitely a partnership, and we just try to facilitate whatever group is trying to develop a UCI Continental team or a women's team, and sometimes it is as simple as like doing the registration for the UCI mm-hmm. or connecting them with a sponsor. We just did a thing with Benin, um, and we were able to provide quite a bit of equipment for them, tools, mechanics tools from Park Tools. So, yeah. And also, like with Benin, they have a, a very much on-fire president of the, the the federation. His name is Romald Hazume, and he's an artist, and he's very creative, and his passion for the last 30 years has been cycling, and when he contacted us, I saw him in Ethiopia, or his guy in Ethiopia, and he wa- the reputation of Rwanda was already under our belt, and he said, I got to get a hold of these guys and see how we can collaborate. And we just started talking, and I told him what we could do. He, some of the parts he bought himself at a discount, other parts we were able to get free of charge so I could send them. We get a lot of people donating clothing you know cycling clothing of course whether it's jerseys shorts and things like that so we have on a regular basis boxes of clothing that we can like Romald he said oh I have a friend going to New York so we send you know a hundred pounds or fifty pounds of clothing uh, clothing to them I'm going to Eritrea soon we have an up-and-coming new club there that I'm bringing clothing, I'm bringing helmets, I'm bringing whatever they need. And it's, you know, not all from the same company, but each club, each entity, each federation uh, that we work with all have different needs. And we just go out and what's nice about the cycling industry is I'll go to a Louis Garneau or a Vittoria Tires and I'll say, I don't want your new stuff. I want 
the stuff that people return, especially Americans, because you see a little sticker that's off color. They're going to send it back to the manufacturer mm -hmm. saying, I want a perfect pair of shoes. We got one year from CD Shoes, the Benini. Uh, no, Benini. Uh, uh, he won the world championship, so they gave, so they made these gold inlet, these gold shoes, and a lot of times the gold was kind of like off color. So we got all these carbon fiber gold shoes that Americans had sent back because there was a little tiny blemish on them when they got them, and CD couldn't resell them. I mean, in the industry has been so amazing mm. because. We don't want all the new stuff. We want stuff that they can't sell, yeah. but still are valuable and are like gold to African countries. Mm. So it's uh, it's a really good uh, and very energized and positive relationship we had either with our vendors, whether it's Park Tool or Victoria Tires. It's like okay, they'll call me up saying we got you know a whole bunch of these returned because of some reason. Yeah. Uh, can you use them? And they'll go to Eritrea or Ethiopia or wherever it is, overruns of team jerseys. Uh, Primal gave us 1,500 jerseys and shorts that were all overruns. So we got six or seven of each team. But now you go to Ethiopia and you got all these kids wearing these jerseys. And it, it's pretty amazing to see. And the support we've got is pretty amazing. How did you go about building these relationships with these um, these organizations, these guys who provide kitting and um, outfits for cycling? How did you go about building those relationships? Uh, I've been in cycling since 1970. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> so I've been in cycling. That's been my passion, my life for, you know, an eternity, it yeah. seems. Uh, I started as a junior cyclist in America. I moved to Europe in 1973 as a junior, and uh, I just in cycling. So I was a professional in Europe. Uh, after uh, my career, I worked in a distribution company, and uh, that's Shaka, my African yeah. dog. Stop. Anyway, uh, <laughs> So I've been in all from manufacturing to distribution. I had my own bike shop. So it's companies that I've worked with for 30 to 40 years yeah. or mm -hmm. have had some sort of relationship mm -hmm. with them for, you know, for four decades. And so it's easy for me to call, you know, Campagnolo or the owner of CD in, in, in Italy or Louis Garneau, who I raced with. Yeah. Uh, so they're people I've known for my whole life. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and it's good to just get a better understanding of how everything um, fits in. But regarding your, I just want to delve a bit deep into, into the, some success stories or key case studies that you, maybe you've done for some of the teams that you've worked with do you have any like success stories of from your exam from your experience well number one adrian neoshuti i mean we got into rwanda and we said oh wouldn't it be great if we got a guy into the olympics so uh adrian neoshuti came the first black african ever to finish the mountain bike race in wow. the 2012 olympics in london so that was pretty darn significant mm. we had bonaventure uizi mana he he won a stage at the 2.1 uh, Amisa Bongo one yeah. year. Uh, we've got quite a lot of kids that have gone up through the rungs and have made impacts within cycling. And also, even, even after their careers, they get to pick what they want to be. Some want to be coaches. Some want to be mechanics. Some want to be soigneurs. So we give them the opportunity and education and follow-up uh, courses, whether it be in America or South Africa or yeah. Europe, to be able to be an integral part of cycling. Because these kids that even though they weren't super successful in cycling, they have five to ten years of experience traveling with the team, seeing how it's done. So. They're our most valuable assets, and we have to keep them within the sport. Yeah. Rafiki Uimana, who went to the UCI 
mechanic training course, and then he went to a lot of subsequent training courses. He's been uh, a mechanic for a South African team. He just returned this week from Portugal. Mm. He went to Pro Touch. Yeah, he went to America with Pro Touch uh, South Africa. So you've got teams that instead of hiring an American or European that doesn't really know the culture, Mm -hmm. you know, whether Rwandan is working in South Africa, he all, there's already uh, an understanding about how things work in Africa, the mentality, even if it's South Africa or Rwanda, there is an African mentality that's different. That has uh, European has to adapt yeah. to or has to understand. So it's much better to have a team hire yeah. Africans that are competent to do what yeah. they need to do or expertise. Adrian Niyashuti was with the Rwandan team in Belgium, and he was there for a whole month mentoring the juniors and the U23 riders, and. Yeah, we could have gotten maybe a more experienced, you know, Belgian person running the team there. But Adrian has lived in Europe. He lives currently in in Italy. But he knows the riders and he knows where the gaps are and where they need to be filled. So now after a decade, we're starting to get a base of competent people, not just in cycling, but support. So we're going to see from this point on, the acceleration of Africans because in the beginning the gap was education and trying to get them to understand crosswinds and echelons and race food and I mean in the beginning they couldn't do two things at once they you'd give them a water bottle and they'd grab the water bottle then they'd stop pedaling because they didn't know they could pedal and drink at the yeah. same time. They were task-oriented. Okay, I'm going to drink now. I'm going to stop everything else. Okay, at the end of the races, they had their pockets full of food and didn't realize they got dropped because they didn't feed themselves. Yeah. The food is for after the races. And the only way I was able to overcome that was at the race finishes, I'd empty all their pockets and put them in a bag for the next day. And they no, coach, I want it now. You know, we didn't eat all day. Well, maybe tomorrow you'll eat. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Um, and actually, I want to ask you two, que- two questions off the back of that. Firstly, um, from the success stories that you mentioned, how is the is the ripple effect of that on the continent, is that evident or is it not really materializing into like an increased interest in in cycling? I'll actually that one first. I think uh, it's 100% evident and it's for several reasons. Mm -hmm. One reason is because Rwanda, everybody, even within Africa, uh, we would go to Ivory Coast and they would say, are you guys still at war? I mean, they were very uninformed as far as where Rwanda had come from uh, the genocide in 1994. But Rwanda gave an inspiration to a lot of the countries even more developed in cycling because they were not known as a very wealthy, you know, economically uh, based country. But nonetheless, they had a really successful and a very professional-looking cycling yeah. team. So it's like, okay, Rwanda can do it. We can do it. So Rwanda was a, definitely a very positive stepping stone to give an example to the other countries that it could be done. And within a very short period of time, probably yeah. the shortest ever in the UCI uh, history, a country came from really not even existing on the UCI calendar and state status to being in the top three, top five within the Africa tour. So they gave that example of it can be done. And also you see it everywhere, even within inspiration within Africa, Benin, you know, the reputation of Rwanda was really positive and they said, Oh, well, you know, he, they got a guys to Olympic. Why can't we? Yeah. I mean, the athletes are there. The okay. potential is there. Okay, makes sense. And secondly, I know this is a topic that you're passionate about, but <laughs> how important is education 
in the development of talent and sighting as a whole, especially in the continent? Education, you can you can do that. It's like you don't have education, you won't have good cyclists. Yeah, yeah. And and even the educational portion ensures the riders that don't make it will be able to do something else. Education is so incredibly important. We are missing out without educating the youth in Africa. And even you know, cycling is our passion. Yeah. Cycling is just a tool. And I, uh, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like how he says, go ahead, and he starts talking all the time? Go ahead. <laughs> um, no, cycling is really important, and we found that out early on in Rwanda simply because we had this group of young men in the beginning who had all had their education interrupted because of the 1994 genocide. So, you know, these were young young boys at the time who had um, been caught up in all of that, and they never got to finish their education, and so that was one of our first commitments is that we would make sure that um, these young boys and men were educated. And so when we were at the Africa Rising Cycling Center, we always had a teacher. We were always teaching English, especially English, because, you know, in other countries, they learn English, you know, like Nigeria and Sierra Leone and um, Kenya, Uganda, everybody has yeah. English as a second language. And But in Rwanda, I mean, everybody just spoke Kenya Rwanda. They didn't even speak French in our group. And so we had to teach you know, a language so that they could navigate in Europe. And that was, Adrian was the most educated rider in the original five. And he also had the most success. Mm. And I really attribute that to the fact that he was educated. And in fact, I was talking to Rwandan diaspora just the other day. And we talked about that because Adrian has taken, he's, he's working with these young, I think there's five or six riders right now in Belgium who are racing school cycling took them to Belgium to race for five weeks. And Adrian was telling this Rwandan diaspora guy that, you know, the challenge is they don't know how to grocery shop. They don't know the language. They don't even know enough English. They, they um, don't know what to do. They don't know how to cook because generally in the Rwandan culture, the women always cook and, so there's this huge gap that we have to fill. And I think countries like Algeria, Eritrea, Ethiopia, the education system is just a little bit more advanced than yeah. Rwanda just because of that gap. You know, the country, it's it's done remarkable in the last 15 years, but there was about a 10-year gap of yeah. just having to rebuild. Yeah, yeah. that is important. Um, but it's good to get that perspective on things and... I think, as you guys echoed, it's um, it's fundamental um, to help drive not just sport but society as a whole and improve things. But sport can be used as a tool to in order to do that. So we're going to take a short break now, and then we'll come back and talk more about Team Africa Rising and other aspects of cycling. So see you guys shortly. Hi guys, thanks for tuning into this episode of Africa Sports Unified, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Please do let us know your thoughts. If you have any topics you would like us to discuss or people you want to join us on a podcast, then we'll be keen to know more. Connect with us on social media, AS Unified, across all platforms, or simply leave a comment. Hope you guys enjoy the rest of the show. Jack and Kimberly, so you mentioned a bit about the um, landscape and paying a good understanding for us, so... More so now, what is your strategy or what strategies do you implement to help your clients or the teams that you work with? Go ahead. You're good on strategy. <laughs> <laughs> so what, we, what we're trying to do is develop more continental teams to get the level of racing higher. There's simply not enough races in Africa, obviously. That's a huge focus. There's, there's more and more local races, which is good. And it's good for the young kids. However, to really get these young men and women to the next level, they need to be racing abroad. They need to be racing in Europe. So, for instance, 
what I mentioned before about school cycling, taking these juniors and U23 riders to Belgium to race. They're literally racing. I think they have like 30 races in five weeks. It's wow. crazy. And that amount of racing, they will learn more in five weeks than they would learn in five years just doing local races in whatever country they are in Africa. Yeah. So one of the reasons that Eritrea does so well and that they are the ones with the, the country with the smallest gap between where they are and getting to the European peloton is that they do these amazing races in the capital city of Asmara pretty much every weekend. They do circuit and crit races, and so they're used to racing, but yet Europe is a whole different animal. I mean, mm. Americans go to Europe, so yeah. Africans need to go to Europe. Yeah, yeah. And just off the back of that, what is the, um, what's the perception, do you think, of maybe the European or Western world towards uh, cycling in Africa? Do they see it as, okay, it's still developing, or it's not quite there yet? What's the... What's the um, yeah, the mindset towards it or the, or the outlook on it? I, from my perspective, I think that they view Africa as a huge potential, but they see it way down the road. Uh, they're not aware either of all the challenges you face in Africa, or I think they're a little bit impatient. Say a team gets an Eritrean rider mm. and brings them to Europe, they expect that African rider to understand how to navigate Europe, how to deal with the food, how to get on a plane, get on a train, get on a bus, and get to races. I think there is not enough. Uh, it's it's unless you live in Africa and unless you know the challenges that these young men have just getting to Europe yeah. and that is I mean just the whole food is different the culture is different it'll take an African rider I don't really it doesn't matter where they're from mm. and you plunk them down in Italy or, or Belgium or whatever it is such a shock to their system just to, I mean, my riders freaked out going on a freeway from San Francisco airport to get on 101 freeway mm -hmm. because they had never seen so many cars in their life. I mean, mm -hmm. the overload of senses and sensory perceptions going into a grocery store. I mean, it's like they are bombarded, which essentially will sap your energy. Mm -hmm. And if you get so much stimuli mm -hmm. and... They have to, it's, it's challenging, and you have to get them ready, not just for the pace of racing, but also for everything else that come, yeah. you know, that, that come with that. So yeah. I think Europe is not, they don't understand the, how much an African rider mm -hmm. has to go through to get to Europe. I wanted to also mention too, or ask you rather, um, regarding... Now, this is slightly moving on, but in terms of how much the culture, um, yeah, how much culture and the sport actually maybe clash or support each other. I know, for example, in our previous conversation, we mentioned about how it's different for female cyclists and with culture and how that's maybe holding back. Do you, do you maybe want to go into that in a bit more detail and what you guys are trying to do to maybe make cycling more accessible to, to, to women on the continent? Well... For women and for men, it's it's just exposing them at a younger age. I think, you know, with having these younger riders in Belgium right now, yeah. that's that's really important because the older these riders get, they, there's a super short time window in cycling that once the rider hits 23, if they haven't made it onto the radar of a world tour team, they most likely will not end up on a world tour team. Mm -hmm. So... I think the sooner we can expose the riders to different cultures, um, whether it's in Europe or even like taking them here to the U.S. We did the Colorado Classic a couple years ago, and what was interesting, back to your last question about how African riders are perceived, we had one rider, Didier Munyaneza from Rwanda, who 
had done a really good job in one of the stages at the Colorado Classic and had stayed with the main group. And I just remember um, it was uh, Taylor, Taylor Finney, who came up to him and we were in, we were following that pack and he just patted Didier on, on the back. And afterwards I came up to him and I said, if you don't mind me asking, what, what did you say to Didier? And he goes, you know, I just told him, dude, you're the real deal and keep fighting. And I think people were surprised the first year that the guys did the Colorado classic, how mm. good they were. Yeah. And I think they're underestimated, but just going back to the whole immersing them in the culture is just getting them there sooner and yeah. getting more. You know, I think that's that's an important thing. Instead of sending one rider onto a team, if we could send two or three. Um, but, you know, it's hard. We had two Rwandan riders that went to Bike Aid, and after four weeks, they were so homesick. They wouldn't leave the house. They were just, they were a mess. Mm. And they ended up coming home and lost their opportunity. So I think another thing that would be really helpful, because I look at this from a very large community aspect, yeah. I think the, the Eritrean riders do so well because there's so many Eritreans all over Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so they kind of have this built-in family no matter where they go. You go to any race in Europe that an Eritrean is racing, and you will see Eritreans and Eritrean flags. Yeah. And... That gives them that connection to home that they need when they're away. And so I would call on the Nigerian diaspora to get out there and support. There's a bunch of Nigerian juniors at the World Track Championships in Germany right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's really important that the diaspora get involved to support yeah. their athletes and to just kind of help them on this journey because it's way more than cycling. Yep. Especially, yeah, especially if, say, you have Nigerian diaspora living in Germany, they can talk the language of, hey, I know what it's like in Nigeria, you know, this is how you navigate this country. It, it, it takes away a huge stress factor, yeah. and stress factors inhibit your potential, mm. and you can't reach your 100%. Unless you are, you know, feel comfortable, you're relaxed, you're, you know, you, yeah. <clears throat> no, it sounds, it sounds fair comments that you made, that you are making there. And now regarding um, um, how you go about, like, funding for Team Africa alone, but also the bigger sports space for cycling on the continent. So I think firstly, how do you guys, how do you go guys maintaining how you do your work I know you mentioned through charities and whatnot but are you strategic regarding where you pull it or is it just a case of as in what's needed is what you're focused on and then move from job to job or you rather strategic about what areas you give more is it equipment is it education how do you guys go about that well we're funded uh, primarily by a large grant to do exactly what we've been talking about which yeah. is develop cycling on the continent what we look for if we're going to help people, is um, that it's they're transparent, that yeah. they really, you know, our, our funding is so small that we yeah. can't afford to give to a group or an organization and then it disappears. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for the most bang for our buck. So if we have committed partners on the ground, like in Benin or Sierra Leone or Eritrea, people that we know that are going to give the equipment or give the the training to the right people and to the cyclists, then those are the people that we want to work with. And yeah. especially at the grassroots level, I mean, I just funded two races in Sierra Leone for women. And it was like, I think it was like $400 to provide for all the stuff to do the race. I'm like, that's huge. And we had 20 girls out there racing that yeah. wouldn't have raced otherwise. Yeah. So that's what we really look the at. follow-up from the kid that did it. And so it, that's what we really look at is, you know, are these trusted partners? Mm. Are Will the money or whatever resources we give get to the cyclists themselves? Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're not in it for the – for the glory of the position or anything. We're yeah. just, more kids on bikes racing, we're happy. Mm. 
and now on a global scale, um, especially on the continent, how is the cycling scene funded? Is it funded through government or private sector? How how is that? Was it does it differ in each? Well, it does differ. The cycling federations predominantly in developing worlds are funded by the government. Yeah. And until you get a really good program and uh, growth within a country, you get the private sector coming in. And then you get stronger clubs, stronger teams, yeah. more professionalism. And until that happens, a country will be, uh, their growth will be limited. Yeah. Uh also, you know, the whole education thing. We uh, partner with a company out of South Africa called Kubeka, and they provide bicycles for, or they have been providing bicycles for school kids, both girls and boys, over the last, I think, decade. And they've learned a lot as far as partnerships and how to actually utilize they're getting bikes to school kids, and those are the potential racers also in the future. So uh, it's, you know, it's our partners are very important, especially the ones with experience. And we've learned that if a country entity or rider is not committed, mm. uh, it's just not even worth spending a penny on. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, they also have to come to the table with either expertise, money, or a commitment to follow up and actually do something. Yeah. Many of the countries want to say, hey, we need help, give us money, and that's all they want, give mm -hmm. us money. And that's just, there's no commitment and no backup plan for them, so we can't. And I, I think what, to what Jock said is that it, cycling will really start to grow on the continent once we get private investment yeah. in cycling because the federations can only do so much. Sadly, there's there's way too many federations that have corrupt and have essentially stifled the growth of the sport. Mm -hmm. And we don't work with those federations because it's just not worth it. But it's heartbreaking to see amazing athletes like in places like Uganda that have potential but can't get through the system. Yeah. And once the system is governed by private investment and private economics, then those riders will bypass any corrupt federation or government yeah. entity and be able to get to the next level. Yeah. So what do you think can actually be, what needs to be implemented or what needs to be done to maybe... Um, gain the attraction of private investment or increased attraction of private investment to head things in the right in the right way, in the right direction. Well, for example, in Nigeria, they got Access Bank and Cocoon, uh, I think, homes to sponsor them. And I think it's vital right now that those entities see an actual return on their investment. So yeah. they need to be extremely diligent on planning where they race, where their exposure is, and be able to show those sponsors that there is an actual return investment. There's a value to their sponsorship, yeah. even because it's hard to find a company that have passionate cyclists within the ability to sponsor a team. Yeah. And fortunately, our main main foundation we work with, the Robin Melanie Walton Foundation. The owner, Rob Walton, is a passionate cyclist, and that was the main reason why he initially sponsored us, you know, 10 years ago, and our relationship has grown and continues to grow, and it's been instrumental in our ability to function within Africa. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I think you guys have provided, like, just a great insight and a great understanding of cycling in general it just seems so vast and so much opportunities uh, but one question that i would like to ask as we wrap up which i ask loads of people and i think i kind of know your answer but i'll ask nonetheless for both of you one answer each if there was one thing that you will introduce into the cycling market in africa to help it improve or get better what would it be
So that's a question to both you, to both Jack <laughs> and Kimberly. You have to, both of you have to answer this. <laughs> I'm thinking. That's a good question. That's yeah. a that's a deep question. That's <laughs> a well, the cycling market. Mm -hmm. It has to be tied to education. Yep. It has to be tied to not just success in sports. It has to be an inspiration of kids. And, you know, that's something that why we really uh, have a strong partnership with Quebeca, because that's about getting bikes to school kids so they can get to work, get to school yeah. on time and in a shorter time. So it allows them greater opportunity in school whether that kid you know chooses cycling as a sport or not it doesn't matter yeah. but their opportunity is grown because of a bicycle yeah. and i think you know getting to the next level of African cyclists on a European circuit, it, it needs partnerships within each country. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like the reason we were so successful in Rwanda is we had government and from President Kagame down, we had yeah. buy-in. If we just chose a country and said we were going to be, you know, like many of the nonprofits in Africa, we're going to do our program, this is what you need. And those programs fail as soon as that entity leaves the country. Mm -hmm. And Africa is riff with people that mean well, come into a country, think that a country needs something, and then comes out, and then it fails. Uh, and then they've done their humanitarian thing that really is about them and not about the country. Yeah. Rwanda needed a vehicle of hope cycling provided that and it will grow and will continue to grow within that country because of that it's education it's finding the right partners that are passionate that will continue to grow because it can't be that we are the ones that continue to grow because at some point we're going to leave. Mm -hmm. And unless you have partners that are continuing it, that are local, that see the needs, we don't see all the needs. Mm -hmm. They know the needs. Uh, it's like Sierra Leone has a much different, greater need than we can see, but only the locals and only the people that we're partnering with yeah. Uh, can see that as like the girls in mechanic courses. I mean, it's creating a whole job industry for these young women within that country. So, I don't know if that answers completely. No, but it's that it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we got the education. <laughs> yeah. Kimberly, would you I mean, agree? Or? I do agree with that, yeah. but I think if there's one thing to really see it take off, it would be really great if we had some multinational, you know, some pan-African large businesses get behind it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether... With a 10-year plan. Yeah, with a, a long plan. Like, you know, to have a sponsor for one year... It's great, but then you're always, the second you get the money, you're hustling for next year. Yeah. If we had a large conglomerate of businesses and businesses that really bought into it that would see the potential to um, showcase their brand internationally, mm -hmm. that would get behind a five or year, ten year plan to grow cycling across all the countries that they're involved in, I think that type of investment would get the ball rolling in yeah. the right direction. It's yeah. kind of like, um, you know, Access has many, Access Bank has many locations around Africa. Mm. They also have locations in the U.S., in New York, and London. And I look at Access as a huge opportunity for company to get an incredible amount of marketing yeah. and publicity 
but we need a large commitment yeah. and we need a multi-country pronged approach mm. and you know it's like DHL why don't we have DHL or why don't we have an MTN or I know in Rwanda we were sponsored by Tigo for a while um, I'm looking at super big picture and I personally believe it needs to be invested in men and women yeah. because women need the same opportunity as the yeah. guys and the women it's it's a gazillion times worse for women in Africa to make it onto the pro ranks. Yeah. No, and I and I think uh, it's important too that these sponsors are not just looking at results. Uh, they have to see the full picture. What cycling impacts the community and a country, yeah. and I think once a, a an entity sees the social impact because uh, that it will make a lot more sense because it's going to be a while before you'll see a, an African on the podium of the Tour mm -hmm. de France. And it will take a lot of investment, but the 10 years that it will take to do that, you will change millions of lives in a positive way. Yeah not even related to cycling. Yep. I mean, you're going to inspire communities to get, I mean, look what it did to Rwanda as far as their heroes and the ability to say, Hey, we got a guy in, you know, in Europe racing. I mean, it, it gives a national pride and that has a value that is much greater than, yeah. you know, winning a local race. Yeah. It's great. Great point. And it's a great point to end on. But before we actually end, do you guys want to mention your um, like social handles and what you guys have coming up next and potentially how people can get in contact with you doing no more information? Yeah, so you can find us on our website at teamafricarising.org. We are also all over social media, Instagram, Africa Rising Cycling, uh, Twitter, Cycling Africa, and also on Facebook. And we are, we are always updating and you can reach us at any of those places. Um, also, just want to put a little pitch out there. We're looking for a professional women's team for a young Ethiopian woman who is ready to take that next step. So I've been hammering doors for, for pro teams for this young lady. And, yeah, just you can find all of our contact information there if you'd like to make a donation, if you'd like to donate equipment. Um, we have a remarkable international network of people that if, if you have a bike in Germany that you want to go to Sierra Leone, I can make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Well, guys, thanks again. Appreciate your time. Uh, it's a pleasure Thank speaking you. to you. And, yeah, we'll definitely hear back from you guys soon. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you Thank so you. much. And for guys that are listening, thank you once again. Um, let us know your thoughts or comments if Jock or Kimberly said anything that piqued your interest and let us know. Um, hashtag is ASU. Um, follow us on socials, Instagram, Twitter. The handle is the same. Um, but guys, thanks so much for your time and look forward to hearing you. Well, look forward for you to listen to our next podcast. Take care.